Joining us today on the Alagos Radio in the Alagos interview series is political scientist and Brown University professor of international political economy, Mark Blythe, author of such books as Austerity, the History of a Dangerous Idea. Mark, welcome back to our program and thank you for joining us today. Always a pleasure to chat with you, Michael. We've spoken in past interviews about austerity and, of course, about your book, Austerity, the History of a Dangerous Idea. Looking at the past couple of years and at the present in Europe, is there any sign, any indication at all, that the policies of economic austerity that are being pursued have had any sort of positive outcome? Uh, Quite the contrary, because what's happened for the past couple of years is that everyone's pretending to do a good game on austerity, but in fact, they're actually not. Uh, budget deficits in Spain are around 5% of GDP. Italy's is getting larger as well. So the so-called automatic stabilizers, an effect that kicks in when basically the economy is in recession, taxes go down and transfers go up, is actually being allowed to operate. This means that the fiscal stance of the EU as a whole for the past couple of years has actually been positive rather than contractionary. Now, is this because of some kind of great revolution that people have had that, uh, oh, maybe everyone tightening at once when you're in a common currency union uh, is simply zero sum against itself? Not really. It's essentially a quid pro quo. And the quid pro quo is the Germans will allow the ECB to continue to do whatever it takes to save the euro. Basically, the massive program of bond buying that they've been going on and suppression of interest rates and and adding liquidity to the banking system. And uh, in return, the Germans will turn a blind eye to what's going on in Spain and France. And we won't even mention Portugal. Uh, The one place where it is continuing, of course, is the Troika program in Greece. And uh, as you know, probably better than most, it's not going very well still. We're speaking with Brown University Professor of Political Economy, Mark Blythe, here on the Alagos Radio and the The Alagos Interview Series. In recent months, we've been seeing a pronounced shift with the Brexit referendum result and with the election of Donald Trump in the United States. Detractors argue that the reasons Trump was elected and the reasons why Brexit prevailed have to do exclusively with racism and xenophobia. Do you agree with this view or do you believe there are other reasons why we have been seeing this? shift? Uh, Well, you know, if you've seen the stuff that I've been doing on global Trumpism, then if it's all racism, if it's racism that's driving this exclusively, then the world has generated an abnormally large number of racists all at the one time, which would be a bit of a hard thing to explain. So, uh, yeah, is there racism? Yes. Is there xenophobia? Yes. Um, One of my colleagues at Cornell, Jonathan Kirshner, in an essay in the LA Review of Books about Trump, I think put it best, He said, uh, while it's absolutely true that not everyone who voted for Trump was a racist, it is absolutely true that every racist who bothered to vote voted for Trump. Now, what does this mean in terms of how we understand Trump and Brexit? The blue wall, the five states in the middle of the country that were solidly Democrat, they were so solidly Democrat that the, the, the Democrats forgot to visit four of them during the campaign. Uh, they um, they were the ones that tipped the election. They were the ones that went for, for uh, Trump. On a county-by-county county level, the majority of those counties voted for Obama not once but twice. So you got to explain to me why a bunch of people who voted twice for a black president suddenly voted for racism, if that was what was driving it, or is it more likely it was the message that uh, Trump was sending, which is essentially, yeah, you voted for hope and change with Obama, what change? Nothing. What's your hope? Not very good. So you might as well try something with me. And I think that's what was driving it. Same thing with Brexit. 
xenophobia, anti-immigration, all that sort of stuff is definitely on the cards. Well, think about the conjunction of events. You've got a migrants crisis brewing in Europe. You have terrorism instrument, uh, incidents around which basically the, the right are all too keen to play upon. So, of course, there's a, a rise and, of course, this is part of the story. But at the end of the day, what was driving this, and we've seen this in the statistics and the more careful analysis of Brexit has been done, is that it's not so much areas where you have a high degree of immigration that are the most um, pro-Brexit. It's the combination of that also with stagnant or declining incomes over a long period of time. Now, why do I push so heavily on the economic? It's a very simple public policy reason. If everyone's suddenly racist, then that drives everything. What do you do with that? Do you put them on the naughty steps? Do we send them off to every education camps a la Mao? Because if it's economics, there's something you can do about that. But if it's racism and it's pure cultural hatred, then I don't know where we go from here. So I don't actually buy that argument. I don't think it's a useful argument. And I think the last thing I'll say about it is when you say this, what you're doing is you're giving the center left in particular, who have authored these things such as trade agreements and presided over declining incomes or stagnant incomes for the majority of people, or well, the top 20%, the top 1%, boom. And uh, they're the ones who have basically said everything's fine. They were the ones who were running a campaign here in the United States saying everything's great. Why would you possibly want to vote against this? And for many people's lived experience, things are not great. So basically they're being lied to. Now, if the uh, the centre left, both in Britain uh, or the centre parties, shall we say, in the United States and Britain, simply write these people off as racist, well, there's nothing they have to do in terms of examining their own actions, their own policies, or even think that what they have done is wrong in any sense, and that, that might give them some inclination as to why people dislike them so much. So it's very dangerous to go down the racism diagnosis because not just is it empirically wrong, I think it leads us into a dead end politically. Looking at Brexit, how has the British economy performed since the referendum and how do you believe that the British economy will perform once the Brexit process has been completed? Now this is really interesting. So there's a famous line from one of the British politicians who when all the experts lined up and said before the Brexit vote and said, oh, don't do this, it'll be the end of the world and the IMF, the OECD, the British Treasury, the Bank of England, everyone, no, all the experts agree it'll be terrible. And then for the next 12 months or, or so, the economy booms. And what that guy said, Michael Gove, what he said was, I think that the British public have had enough of experts. And in a sense, he's right, because of course they were wrong. Now, why were they wrong? Well, you know, a lot of economics over the past decade and a half has been thoroughly wrong, so there's nothing new in that. But what's the fact is that basically people are calling people on their claims and saying, you know, you said it would be terrible and the economy is booming, so you guys are totally wrong. Well, I don't think they're totally wrong. I think what's really going on is this, and I know this from personal experience. I was in London over January. London's now super cheap if you have dollars, and even if you have euros. So since Brexit, the pound has devalued quite a lot. And what that basically means is there's a giant shopping spree going on, which is boosting the economy because imports are down. And while exports aren't rocketing ahead, they are getting a boost. But essentially, Europe, which of course is a, a, move, a free movement of people's zone, is essentially going to London to shop. And it's driving up prices and it's giving the economy a real consumption kick. Now, that won't continue. Essentially, we'll adjust to this over the longer term. And then what happens was those devalued pounds have to buy more and more imports. And those imports are going to get more and more expensive. 
So that's going to lead to both an actual sort of, let's say, a kind of step function increase in the cost of living in Britain and is also going to push some inflation at the system. Now, is this deadly? Is Britain going to fall off a cliff? That's what I'm back being sceptical about the experts. Yes, that will happen. Yes, it will reduce, materially reduce the standard of living of Britons. But will the British economy cease to function? Absolutely not. So, you know, it's a very much a mixed bag on that one. This brings us to the United States, where you have argued recently that Donald Trump is, in a sense, a Marxist. And this is certainly a comment that will provoke some reaction. Explain this to us. How does Donald Trump resemble a Marxist? All right, so this is a provocation, and I even wrote a piece for the Washington Post, but they decided to sit on it. Can't think why. But all right, so here's the the story, right? So back in the 1970s, there was a a debate between um, a guy called Ralph Miliband, who was the father of the two Milibands who went on to run the British uh, Labour Party, uh, David and Ed. And he was a good Marxist, and there was another good Marxist, who can't in Paris, who was a Greek guy called Nikos Puzlansas. So you had the Puzlansas-Miliband debate about the state and capitalist society. And on the Miliband view, it was a kind of sociological view that essentially it's these elites who go to the same schools, who talk the same way, that get all the top jobs, and that's why the state does what the capitalists want and vice versa. And Puzlansis gave a much more structural reading, which basically goes along the following lines. There's a collective action problem at the bottom of capitalism. And here's what I mean by this. While it's individually rational for any firm to offshore its labor or to replace its workers with robots, if everybody does it, it's collectively suicidal. So what the state has to do is to get above the short-term interest of profits and take the long-term view on the health of the economy. Now, in that sense, Trump and the people around Trump kind of are drawing on that kind of Marxist thinking. They're not reading Marxist. They're not reading Puzlansis. But they're coming to the same conclusion that essentially if you just have unbridled composition and Bannon, his advisor, has been quite explicit on this. If you basically turn everything into commodities with a price, then what you and you turn everything into a balance sheet and make everything assets, then you create a system which is incredibly volatile and has a huge sort of race to the bottom component. And seen against that, the whole thing about border taxes and exhorting businesses to invest at home and buy American and don't offshore your labor is kind of drawing on those similar threads. Now, does that mean Donald Trump's a Marxist? Absolutely not. But are they both getting at that kind of endogenous weakness in capitalist production structures? I would say that they are. So in that sense, Donald Trump's a Marxist. You gave us your outlook for the British economy. What is your outlook for the U.S. economy going forward? Do you believe that Trumponomics will be allowed to prevail and that his administration will succeed with the stated goal of bringing back jobs and in industry which were lost? So there's two stories on this, and I honestly don't know how to be- which one to believe because they're equi-probable. So let's assume that you know we don't end up in a war with Iran and China and markets fall off a cliff and all those things which are sadly possible under this administration. And let's assume that we sort of backpedal a little bit and he, he tries to do what he, he tries to do what he says he's going to do. Now here's the story as to why it won't work. Uh, look at Germany. Germany is the most efficient exporter in the world. It's got a large manufacturing sector. It's short 300,000 skilled engineers. So there's plenty of room for manufacturers in this world. Yeah, that's true. But the size of the German manufacturing sector in terms of the number of workers they employ in total has been shrinking for the past 20 years. And it's shrinking in China. 
because ultimately capital machines do substitute for labor very efficiently. And unless you're going to make a political commitment to build 1980 style cars with 1980 style production techniques, it's just not clear how you're going to provide that volume of jobs because most of those jobs can and should be automated because they're, they're dirty, unhealthy and are probably better done by robots. So there's that story. Now here's the other one. If you look at the total volume of manufacturing and the total output of manufacturing across the planet, output is up, but the number of workers is down, and that seems to go with that story. But there's another way of telling that story, which is a lot of firms simply just move to China and move to sort of globalized locations where it's so cheap that you can substitute labor for capital. And in a sense, what you've done then is artificially the number of workers that you can have in manufacturing, we could still have a bigger manufacturing sector if those processes were reversed. Now, I think the second one is interesting. I'm not sure it contradicts the first one, but they do actually push in different directions. Now, if Trump, if, if, if the second one is true, Trump can do a lot of what he says he's going to do. If the first one, the effect of the first one overrides the effect of the second one, he's not going to be able to do that. But more importantly and more immediately, I mean, have a look at what he's doing. So the first thing is we're going to basically create trouble with every Muslim country that we've either bombed or been in or have bad relationships with. We won't do anything to the Saudis, despite all their links to God knows what. Um, and that's one thing. And the next thing is we're going to start like talking trash with China, etc. And the third thing is we're going to basically roll back the Wall Street playbook to 2006. And we're going to have big tax cuts. So what does it actually look like? It looks like kind of like a trumped up version of Reaganomics. You know, whether that, you know, giving me another tax cut is not going to produce jobs in the Midwest, irrespective of trade policy. So, you know, it's, it's heading in several contradictory directions at once, but we'll see where it goes. As to, you know, exactly how it's going to play it out, I have as much of a clue as anybody else, which is to say, we don't know. We're speaking with Brown University Professor of Political Economy, Mark Blythe, here on The Alagos Radio and the The Alagos Interview Series. President Trump recently announced the formal withdrawal of the United States from TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, while it also looks like TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, is also dead in the water, and NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, is up for renegotiation. Free trade, of course, and these agreements are presented by some as this really great thing. And a couple of issues here. What was the real economic impact of free trade agreements such as NAFTA? And what would TPP and TTIP have actually meant in economic terms? Mm. All right. Well, I'm not a trade economist. So, you know, these are comments to be taken with the, this is what I think about this stuff without having the benefit of, you know, really deeply studying it. But my, my basic story goes like this. NAFTA is qualitatively different from TTIP and these other agreements. NAFTA was about trading real goods and services between countries that abut each other and who were already heavily integrated, particularly in the Canadian case, into the American economy and into American supply chains. So in a sense, uh, what the American auto industry got was slightly cheaper, more flexible production of auto parts by the Canadians. And then what they got from the Mexicans was cheap labor to offshore a bunch of stuff. And it's the jobs effect on the Mexican side, which has paid people have paid most attention to. Ross Perot was right when he said there'll be a giant sucking sound as all those jobs leave America and go to Mexico. And that, you know, that happened. But we also have to remember that prior to that, take Wisconsin, for example, Wisconsin lost one third of its manufacturing jobs uh, before NAFTA uh, when they moved from Wisconsin to places like Texas. There was a huge drain to the south 
to get away from organized labor, make labor cheaper. So in a longer and longer term view, you can actually see NAFTA is just a continuation of a process of get, getting out of the heartland, which began you know, in the 1960s, in fact. So that's that's that one. Now, now, what about the other ones? Well, the other ones are totally different. If you think about their economic effects, they were all estimates because they didn't do them. And then people are talking about, oh, it'll boost GDP by a half a percent or one percent. Well, that, that's nothing. That's a rounding error. I mean, yeah, okay, one percent on a seventeen trillion dollar economy is not to be sneezed at, but it's not as if it's going to give us ten percent or you know a huge boost to growth. And this is over a very long time period. So why were the left in particular incensed by these agreements? Because of things called investor protection clauses, which essentially locked in the rights of firms to essentially sue governments for policies that they didn't like. So an example of this was the company that was suing the US, I think it was, over the Keystone Pipeline decision of Obama for lost profits because they would have made a profit had that decision not come down. The decision has now been reversed, of course, but I'm using it to illustrate the problem. Or imagine if you're in Denmark and Denmark decides it's got to do even more against climate change and it pushes some regulations on firms that cost them money. Well, under these agreements, they could go to a shadowy court where no minutes are kept the public doesn't get invited and a, an independent tribunal of trade lawyers and lobbyists will basically decide if the Danish taxpayer has to compensate a firm for basically voting for things that they would like. So that's why the left got really nervous about this stuff and I think justifiably so. But they were missing the trick because those agreements really weren't about trade, they were about security. They were essentially cementing in the 21st century with a rising China and a shift to Asia in terms of general economic activity on the planet, the Americans' special position in the world. So the Trans-Pacific Agreement didn't contain China, but it contained everyone else. It was a way of keeping the Chinese out and keeping their economy locked down in terms of American rules and order. So by walking away from that, we've in a sense sort of shorted American rule and American hegemony uh, in that area. And this is why the Chinese were absolutely delighted at first when Trump got elected, because that meant no TTP, which meant that their influence was going to grow. Of course, what's happened since then has been a doubling of that effect, because the sort of the, uh, let's say, random shocks that appear to be generated almost every day by the, by the Trump administration is dr effectively driving more and more uh, countries across the world into the arms of China, because suddenly they look pretty reasonable. So, uh, yeah, there's, uh, let's say, some interesting politics going on because of these agreements. How do you gauge the backlash to Brexit and to Trump's presidency thus far and all of the reactions that both have generated? Well, I mean, what's the what's the Brexit reaction, uh, the, the backlash against Brexit? I mean, even when they had a free vote in Parliament, the vast majority of MPs endorsed it. So I'm not, I'm not sure what the Brexit backlash is. The Brexit backlash, to the extent it exists, is people like me and people of my class sitting in London fretting about their rather exalted position in society and how it's going to change because you've got this kind of move, populist move, which the Conservative Party under May has embraced. Imagine having the temerity to say that the economy should be for ordinary working people and not just for banksters and the elite. Goodness me. So there's that. Um, in terms of the backlash against Trump, I mean, this is the, the you know, if you put a bull in a China shop, people who buy China will get nervous. And uh, that's exactly what's happened. And there's a certain kind of shock that still hasn't receded here in the US that the, the, the election actually happened, that, that this guy and the people around him are now in charge. So, you know, I like to think it was Wynton Marsalis or Bradford Marsalis, Bradford Marsalis the, the, the musicians. One of them, I believe, was critiqued 
leaked on social media for not showing up at a rally to be against Trump. And he said, well, how about we actually just wait till he does stuff and then we'll find out what we can protest again. Well, given the way that things have gone with the immigration orders and, and the way that security tends to be trending and what's going to happen with financial regulation, I think there's plenty to get upset about at this juncture. And I think that that's going to continue. But even though the, the drivers behind Brexit and Trump are dissatisfaction with elites, uh, declining wages, everything going to the top, the top getting bailed out, but nobody else is, they are the same. They're playing out in different ways because they're very different political systems. Let's talk a bit about the European Union and the Eurozone. We're looking at Brexit, big national elections in Germany and in France, and an increasing populist and anti-EU sentiment all across the continent. Is the very existence of the Eurozone or even the EU itself now in danger, in your view? Well, it is. And that's, you know, the line that I used to say was I used to worry about the Euro, so I wrote a book about it and I decided that it was going to stay. But what I wasn't paying attention to was the thing that lies under the euro, which is the support of mainstream parties for the European project itself. So what happens if those parties become very weak and fragile and are replaced by insurgents from the left and the right? Well, the left kind of likes the EU as a project. They like the cosmopolitan of it, cosmopolitanism of it. They're not sort of xenophobic in that sense, but they are nationalist in economics in the sense that they want economies to, as Theresa May, no left-winger, but I'll use her words, make it work for ordinary people. And that's about renationalizing control of markets and the Brexit narrative of taking back control, et cetera, comes from that point. Um, but, you know, the left-wing version of this with Podemos in Spain, etc., with with Syriza before they were put under tutelage, um, that was very much what the, the, where that was pushing, and it's against the mainstream bloc of parties. On the right, it's much more pronounced now. It used to just be the left-wing parties that were having their lunch eaten. So think about what's happened to the British Labour Party, and particularly the German SPD, who now poll regularly around 22 to 25%. I mean, they'll never form another government. Um, but then it seemed that the centre-right was the impregnable force. And while May and Merkel have definitely shored up their vote, you actually see with the Brexit decision, with the rise of AFD in Deutschland, uh, and um, with a host of other things coming up, for example, the French election, the, the, the right-wing centre block is having its vote share eaten away by insurgents as well. So think about termites in a house. If they start basically eating away at the foundations on both the left side of the building and the right side of the building, then the building looks fine from the outside, but it could go any day. So the French election is going to be absolutely crucial here, and then the German election is coming up, and that's going to be very important as well. I think one of the things that might have happened is that the Europeans now are kind of like having a timeout. So because they're not squeezing them, their economies mindlessly at the moment, things are actually getting better. Unemployment dipped below 10% for the average of the EU for the first time since, I think, 2008. And uh, even though un youth unemployment is catastrophically high and there's still very low growth, etc., you know, things have stabilised over the past two years. Now, whether you can keep them stable through centre bank intervention, etc., forever is a different question. But that's where we are at the moment. And I think that one of the weird things that's happened with the election of Trump, if you think about, you know, protests in cities all over the world, I mean, it's, only America can provoke such a reaction. They're, they're so important that people protest the election of someone who doesn't govern your country. But um, with those protests, etc., and then with the Trump administration's behavior as soon as they get into power, 
I think it may be the case that a lot of the European public are looking around going, hey, we were thinking about going down that road with these populists. Maybe that's not such a good idea. So there could be a kind of negative demonstration effect from the Trump effect, and that could mobilize more people, particularly on the left, to go out and vote against the National Front, etc. But unless mainstream parties change their message and actually embrace some of the concerns which have animated those that have thrown the populists into power, then there's a big, big problem ahead. Because if everyone shows up to block the National Front, the legitimate question from the Front supporters is, what are you for? All you're doing is blocking forces that want to make a change. You become kind of like a, the defensive tackle in American football. All you're doing is there to block. You're not there to create anything. And that itself is probably its own form of fragility. We're on the air with Brown University Professor of Political Economy, Mark Blythe, here on the Alagos Radio in the Alagos interview series. Greece once again finds itself popping up in the news. Despite the government's claims of an economic recovery and the achievement of a primary budget surplus, the future of the IMF's participation in a Greek so-called bailout program is in question. Greece is facing another huge debt bill. Revenues are shrinking, while there is increasing talk of Grexit, one that would be imposed by the EU itself. What do Greece's economic indicators actually show and do you believe that Greece is on its way out of the Eurozone and indeed do you believe that Greece itself should leave now on its own terms? Well, your, your question is a bit of a shocker to me because I didn't actually realize that there was new talk of Grexit. I didn't actually hear that. I might have been focused on other things, as they say, since November, given that I live in the United States. Um, but essentially, Greece is, no, it's not going well. And, you know, the whole sort of the, the riot over the pensions, the pen, they, they're given the pensioners a bonus and all that sort of stuff that happened at the turn of the year is indicative of that. Um, but you've got a real problem. Those with skills, those who are young of left, they tend to be your future taxpayers. You're left with the public sector and the old, essentially, to be very crude about it. They don't generate much in the way of tax revenues, particularly when the economy is chronically depressed and is constantly trying to drive a budget surplus, uh, which is which in the context of a debt overhang means less investment and less, less employment. It's in a terrible place. But given the way the Troika have structured this and the way that the ESM works, European Stability Mechanism, which has taken most of the private sector risk from the banks that lent Greek the money, Greece the money and put it into the public sector. Greece is in a kind of like a tutelage state or a kind of cordon sanitaire financially, where it lives off the drip feed of the Troika. Now, would Greece be better off outside? Probably. Would Greece be better off with its own currency? Probably. But then you've got the question of how you get there. Now, there's been discussions of parallel currencies, etc. But whichever way you go, it's already bad. And that transition is going to hurt even more. I mean, if you've got assets, if you have euros, think about it this way. You still have euros and you have assets in a Greek bank and you get wind of the fact that there's going to be a parallel currency. You're going to try and do everything you can to move those assets into an Italian bank. Because that way they've still got real euros when ultimately you're handed new drachmas. And if there's a huge devaluation because of that, then those euros will buy lots more new drachmas than whatever parity the government sets on the day they're going to be a swap. So there's, you know, this is the problem with the euro as a whole. It's a Hotel California problem. You can check in, but you can't check out. So that's why I say I'm surprised about this new talk about this, because it's not clear to me how you affect this. And, you know, we can imagine various scenarios, but at this point in time, they're all scenarios. You mentioned the parallel currency as a possibility, and there has been talk about a so-called parallel currency being imposed in Greece. What has the history of dual or parallel currencies been in other situations where they have existed, and would this be a harmful prospect for Greece and its economy? 
Well, I mean, the great economy is already on life support. So if you start playing around with the electricity to the life support machine, yeah, that can be kind of damaging. But ultimately, if you're lying in a ward slowly dying, you might as well try something. Um, in terms of parallel currencies, you know, they're, they're not great. The history of them is like there's not many, many around or checkered. But one of the ways that it's been talked about just now, um, most recently was in the context of France and the National Front. National Front want to get out of the euro. So in a sense, what they propose is kind of reverse engineering the euro. So you had national currencies. Now we had this thing called the EQ, which was kind of like um, a numerical or a kind of um, if we all had a currency, how much would it be worth? And this is what it looks like, which was a prelude to going in to the euro full blast. And they're saying, well, why don't we basically take time to renegotiate all of our contracts and we'll back out of it into the EQ as a kind of parallel currency and from there we'll go back. Well, you know, the problem of this is the speed and reaction time of financial markets. You're gone are the days when you can basically, you know, lock up the banks on a Friday on a bank holiday, stuff them with a brand new currency and everybody opens up on the Monday and says, oh, look at the new money and business goes on. You're in a globally interconnected, hyperlinked world run by algorithmic trading platforms and dominated by hedge funds and big banks that make bets on trades. If you're trying to do this stuff, the, the currency markets will kick the hell out of you. So, and you know, it's not about beating up Greece, it's a bigger target. I could take, if I know that Greece is going to try this, I know there's going to be a lot of volatility in Euro. I can basically take out options and bet on both directions in which way the Euro moves. And then that creates amplifications in the system as everybody else tries to do it. So it's just a very, very hard thing to do in the modern world. It's to back out of this. So, you know, again, you know, people talk about these things, but I have absolutely no way of waiting what the reality of it is. What might the difference be between a parallel currency system and a cleaner break, if you will, and a return to a national domestic currency? Well, again, I mean, I, I find these sort of conversations to be sort of a many angels dance on the head of a pen. Um, I mean, if you just declare new drachmas tomorrow and start issuing script, anybody who's got euros will recognize that's real money and will want to preserve the euros. So, you know, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle immediately. If you try and do it more gradually through a parallel currency and hope that people adjust, you then legislate that payments should be done digitally rather than through cash and it's always going to use the new unit of account, then yeah, in principle you can get there, but it's not easy and it's not easy to foresee how that works out. So I don't really have any strong opinions on which one's, which one's better or how to do it because I do think these are kind of philosophical more than practical exercises at this point. Overall, in looking at developments in Greece, in Europe, in the United States, and elsewhere, would you argue that the neoliberal world order or even capitalism itself are in crisis? Well, I think that I did a foreign affairs essay um, reviewing some recent work recently called Capitalism in Crisis, Who's to Blame and How We Got Here. So I think there really are big problems, and the big problems are, are pretty simple. One is inequality on a massive scale. But simply because when 80% of the population don't feel that they're sharing in the prosperity, they will want to redistribute it one way or another. And if the mainstream parties are tone deaf to these needs or the or the movements that drive them, then they will be replaced. So, you know, that that's a problem. Um, in terms of capitalism itself as a social system and as an economic system, I think some of the stuff that's out there, like robots replacing 30% of all jobs, is a bunch of tech speak from California. So I would short it. The fastest growing job in the United States by volume is elder care nurse. I have yet to meet an elder care nurse robot. 
But you do end up with a big service sector with low wages, in part because capital controls all the money, all the money, all the power and has all the advantages. And that's not going away anywhere soon. So that creates a lot of political tensions and frictions. So I think there are real deep structural problems. Can they be overcome? Yes, we can if we think smartly about them. It's very easy to do something about inequality. Just pick a tax system, the one from the 50s, the 60s or the 70s, anyone, I don't care which one. You'll generate way more revenue and you'll actually create better patterns of consumption in the middle because basically the top has all the money and they don't pay any taxes. The bottom isn't earning any money and it pays most of the taxes. And then the very poor don't pay any taxes and have no money. That's patently unsustainable. So you could imagine progressive tax reforms, etc., uh, which would do a great deal to restore sort of middle class consumption. People have got to stop accumulating debt as a surrogate for wage growth. It's great for banks, but it's terrible for everybody who's actually taking on that debt. When you have an environment with low inflation, there's no way to eat away the value of the debt and your wages aren't growing. You create kind of creditor debt or standoff. So what's happening at the level of Greece and Germany is in a sense also happening within countries, between borrowers and lenders, and between generations, between the old who have most of the assets, 75% of all financial assets are held by baby boomers, and then the young who are increasingly expected to pay for everything with wages that simply aren't growing. So there's lots of problems and lots of tensions and the populism we see around the world is one reaction to that. Um, Hopefully it's not the only one. Professor Blythe, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today here on the Alois Radio and the Alois Interview Series and for sharing your insights with us and our listeners. Always a pleasure.